0: Yeah, so it's been uh, uh, kind of a wild week, I guess, Uh, but uh, I'm thankful that uh, God's been watching over us, and uh, I don't know, the Habakkuk passages that we're studying have have been helpful to me, just, you know, I don't know if it specifically applies, um, you know, like corresponds, but it gets me thinking uh, in the right direction, especially about, you know, God's power and grace. Uh, we're at the fifth of six messages on the book of Habakkuk, and our big theme has been a new world, something um, that I think both Habakkuk and God desired. Uh, the one that Habakkuk was living and occupying was intolerable, full of wickedness and injustice, but uh, their two respective visions slash worldviews slash pathways were very different. God wanted Habakkuk to rectify the problems that were ongoing in the land, uh, and he was puzzled by God's um, apparent uh, inaction and arguably uh, indifference. Uh, God's vision is more comprehensive. He will not apply a a temporary band aid solution, but he seeks a more permanent one, which entails uh, a certain severity. Uh, God will send the hateful Babylonian army to conquer his chosen people and take them into exile. This is not the kind of new world that Habakkuk wants at all. So he's been trying to cajole God into choosing a different agent or means. But God has made it clear that it's not only the Israelites that he will deal with, but the Babylonians as well. So, in chapter two, last time we saw that God indeed was fully aware of the faults and sins of the Babylonians. Uh, he had already ordained their downfall uh, through His uh, larger plan. Uh, chapter three uh, represents Habakkuk's response to what God says. Um, In verse 1, it says uh, it identifies the chapter as a prayer of Habakkuk. But technically, it's actually uh, a song to God about his power and glory. The whole book is uh, probably poetic, but this chapter uh, has musical aspects. And I'll overview the song structure a little later, uh, but let me get to my title and the message organization. So our worldview, uh, colon, unprecedented. Um, I think many people like to bandy around that word, unprecedented, um, like if they do something or they are responsible for something, or if they, they take, like to take credit for something that's new and never seen before, it's unprecedented. You hear that uh, fairly often. If any being possesses the qualities of or acts in a manner unprecedented, it's God, right? No one can compare to who God is. No one can do what God has done. Um, This is Habakkuk's confession. Uh, There was no one like God and no one who could do what God does. Uh, What about God in terms of his nature or actions are unprecedented. What can we say about that? It turns out that verse two in our passage is really kind of a topical verse uh, for these attributes, and I'd like them to shape uh, my sermon. So verse two, I broke it up by section. First part, Lord, I have heard of your fame. Lord, I've heard of your fame. So um, something that's unprecedented is God's reputation, his renown. There's no way that anyone else possesses the kind of fame that God has. And then the second attribute is uh, said by Habakkuk, I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. So what's unprecedented are all of the mighty acts of power, and glory, and protection, and judgment. The previous acts of power that God has um, displayed uh, on behalf of the Israelites in particular. Right? So uh, Habakkuk stands in awe of God's uh, strength. And then C, the third, the last part is, um, uh, I want to say it's unprecedented what Habakkuk is asking for, "In wrath, remember mercy." And I'll try to explain that more. Uh, based on these segments of verse two, I want to kind of kind of give uh, consider three aspects of God's uh, unprecedentedness, <laughs> if that is a, a real word. So I'm I connected, right? You see the corresponding A. So I want to say that God is unique. Is original. Uh, the uniqueness of God is never seen before, never will be seen after. Okay. And then the history of God's dealing uh, with the nations, especially for uh, in favor of the Israelites, right? God's history of protection and of, of uh, support and of, uh, really, defending right the Israelite nation, and then as it's just a simple connection there, verse two, see uh, mercy and wrath, right? So what you see, um, God being merciful in the time of wrath, that too is unexpected. That too is so transformative. It's unprecedented. So those are the verses that we'll do. So um, the bulk is probably the history, the the second part, and I'll be spending the most time on that. But before we dive into these one by one, uh, I think I should offer some notes on the song's structure, Chapter 3. Some of these are unfamiliar, so I'm just going from a commentary myself. But on Shigeonath... Uh, what does that mean? Shigionath. No one knows what that means. Probably uh, they think the tune or musical setting for singing. Okay? The refrain is, Lord, I have heard of your name. Okay? That sets up the refrain. And it's followed by three musical stanzas that uh, take us through verse 15, our passage today. And then the last few verses, the most famous ones of Habakkuk, 16 through 19, is considered uh, more of a free form. Um, like a uh, musical coda, a a conclusion, wrapping up the the song. Uh, You can tell the stanzas that there are three because of the uh, use of the word salah, right, Uh, or salah. No one is sure what salah means, um, but it shows up here in chapter 3 and 71 times in the psalms, um, suggesting some kind of musical direction possibly an interlude. Yeah, in Habakkuk 3, it signals the beginning of a stanza. Okay, so like, for example, look at verse 3. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. So the, the uh, title of the stanza is God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And so there are three stanzas here. And here's, <laughs> here's how they shake out. Right? Three stanzas are like this. Verses 3 to 8, uh, I, I just talked about God's past powerful wrath. Right? And then the second stanza, verses 9 through 13a, uh, the purpose of deliverance. Why did God act in this way? What was his intention? And that was, of course, to save the anointed one, save the Israelites. And then the third stanza is the, you know, defeat, the crushing defeat of the enemy. So we see that in the second half of verse 13 through 15. And then I put into quotes, Coda, Habakkuk's faith and joy. So if you're into the structure or kind of those technical aspects, uh, good for you. (laughs) I hope it was helpful uh, in some way. Okay, Uh, finally, on to uh, God's uniqueness, right, as a form of uh, his unprecedentedness. We all want to be special. We want to be original. We want to be the first, the biggest, or the best. But we're merely human. Uh, We're finite. Uh, We have limitations. But God does not. The nature and being of God uh, is, of course, unprecedented. There is no one like him. Uh, he's a creator, the unmoved mover, the first cause that brought order into being. Uh, God is dimensionally different from we, from us. It is not a matter of degree. Right? It's not just a different degree, but it's a matter of kind. And there's an ontological difference, philosophers will say, between us and God. So by definition, Because God is the ultimate creator, Uh, by definition, he's unique. God opens the way to things that have never been seen, imagined, or experienced. God can redefine even as he pleases. Um, He can create out of nothing, right? Ex nihilo. He can turn darkness into light, bring life from death. God can make all things new. Yeah, that's unprecedented has never been seen, never will be done again, other than God, right? What God has done and can do will never be matched uh, by any force, nation, or individual. Uh, so Habakkuk wants to exalt God for this specialness, right? This God of the Israelites was the true God. Nothing or no one could compare. Nothing or no one could stand before God. He alone determined and governed all things. And Habakkuk assumes that everyone is quite aware of this. In verse 2, he sings of God's fame. Not only he, but the whole world had come to reverence and fear the Lord God. God was sovereign. What he says goes. What he does lasts. Nothing is impossible with God. Never before and never again will there be anyone or anything like God. I think you get my point. Right? Let me move quickly to my second aspect of God that is unprecedented. Um, God has demonstrated acts of power, destruction, and judgment that have never been uh, seen or known before. Uh, in verses 3 to 15, uh, Habakkuk's song. Describes uh, numerous what they call theophanies, right? Theophanies, uh, so physical manifestations of God's presence to humanity. God strides forth on the earth as a warrior against crime, visible in the storm of his creation. So we see sun, lightning, flood, plague, earthquake, natural powers that God uses. When he appears, people on the earth tremble at his power. Habakkuk references uh, the many acts of deliverance and victory that God demonstrated to the Israelites. Some of the descriptions are general in nature, but uh, some of them probably could be matched to a corresponding event in Israelites, in, in, in Israel's history. Yeah. For instance, uh, Timon uh, is located in southern Palestine, and the Paran Mountains, lie further south on the eastern edge of the sinai peninsula so it's it's with there where god uh, god's formation of israel began it is the place where israel found refuge found refuge after deliverance from egypt from the pursuing uh, egyptian army so this is where mount sinai is located and this is uh in this place the order of the community What God wanted from his people was established under God's instruction. It is a place that God began to act in mighty ways to lead, protect, judge, and shape his people. So Habakkuk is referring to a certain uh, memorable recorded incidents um, to remind God and his readers that God had acted in these ways in the past. So when God went before his people as a warrior against their oppressors, the sight and sound of God's splendor were audible and visible to all. His powerful presence, warring against the wicked, uh, and the whole earth dramatically uh, responds, right? The tents of Kushan, the dwellings of Midian, they started um, experiencing fright and distress because God had shown up right fear enveloped uh, uh fear was rampant in the enemies of god in, in the end there's this a uh, battle scene which uh kind of vividly so I, I thought it was i thought of the iliad when i was reading that it vividly shows uh, israel's helpless people they're about to be scattered by the attacking army that's about to devour them and chaos is about to descend but god turns the tables right he shows up he scatters the foe, right, and defeats them with an actual storm. So, you know, I'm thinking that there is some biblical reference here uh, in, in, that Habakkuk has in, in mind, even as he talks about some like cosmic battles uh, as well. Okay, but to me, it's not important to actually specify or identify what exact event he's talking about. Uh, my 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 uh, reading of this is that what habakkuk is doing is he is looking back to a time when god's power seemed more direct, more evident. and i think he's doing this because he wants to try to still persuade god right to take this kind of previous course of action. so It's it's actually a precedent. God, you did this in the past. Remember, you did this and you are like this and the world, you you can do it again. You have a pattern, you have a a, a modus operandi. And I think uh, Habakkuk is preferring that kind of past display of visible power over the course that God is going to take Judah. And that is, you know, through Babylon. Indeed, I would argue that this seems to be the main purpose of this section for Habakkuk. He wants to recall and remind God of all that the Lord had done. It says in verse 1, right? He wants these glorious actions to be renewed. Other translations call it revive. That's cool, right? Yeah. In our time, make them known, uh, he says. So Habakkuk wants that kind of God, that kind of plan, that kind of um, destiny to, uh, to take place. Um, he wishes God would work in these ways. Right? Habakkuk would gladly accept a repeat of these mighty works of God. And again, I think it's because he doesn't want God to resort to the Babylonians. So I found it really interesting that Habakkuk is still trying to uh, dissuade God from his uh, determined course of action. Um, you know, when I read this passage in the past and you know, when I thought about what kind of messages I wanted to give, when I, I always assumed that, you know, after, you know, chapter two and the start of chapter three, Habakkuk was fully on board. Right? He goes, okay, God, you're going to bring the Babylonians? No problem. I'm with you. It's a harsh uh, uh, plan, but it was clear and, and stuff. But then in preparing for this message, I realized that in the first 15 verses, Habakkuk is still kind of, uh, he's, not, he's not convinced, he's not uh, fully there with God. He's still proposing an alternate plan, you know, and he's using rhyme and rhythm, right? Uh, this kind of praise, I think, to kind of sway God's mind it took me repeated readings to kind of figure that out that was going on in the passage. But then I got really excited because um, in verses 16 to 19, right? His conclusion next week, um, it, it provides such a stark contrast. If even to verse 15, Habakkuk is still saying, no Babylonians, God, you do this the way you used to do it. You know, Habakkuk was reluctant to accede to God's painful plan. In verse 16 though, yet, yet, So that word becomes um, so uh, transformative, right? Um, That's going to be an important word where he says, I still believe that this is the way to go, but yet instead, you know, there's that kind of transition there. And so to me, that makes Habakkuk's faith so real, so raw. He doesn't want to believe it. He doesn't want to accept it but he submits, right? He will not only put faith in God, but he'll rejoice. Okay. Getting ahead of myself. <laughs> that's, that's next week. Right? Today, we're still looking at Habakkuk striving to make his worldview prevail. You know, we live in a, a world of change, right? Um, you know, even our, uh, the governmental administration and we're in an unprecedented global pandemic, right? All that, all that stuff, you know, uh, uh, you know, you guys are, are, are aware. And, and sometimes it's hard to kind of think about adjustment, thinks about things about that we lost or the things that we're going to have to deal with. Like, I think, you know, um, the coronavirus and different manifestations, right? It's going to keep coming waves of different kinds, even if we get a vaccine for this. And so the way that we've, you know, done things like shaking hands or kind of, you know, not not being careful, uh, you know, limiting these things to like pockets of, of places, you know, that, that time is probably over. And I think that is kind of unsettling. And, and if you're like me, uh, you want to kind of keep the good things of the past and you're kind of grumbling about, you know, changes that you don't like uh, in the future. And I think in a, in a more mundane way, that's what um, my version, our version is more mundane, but to, that's what Habakkuk is, you know, struggling with God about. Right, uh, he has to accept a new reality, a new world uh, that he doesn't. He's not really ready for. Uh, I'm not a Downton Abbey fan, right? I've only watched like a minute or so, and I go, "Hmm, not, not not interested in this." But I know a few people that you know really love this show, right? One, one person in my in one body in my in-person audience um, has, but. And it's a turn of the century kind of, you know, show in, in, uh, in England, right? And a lot of technological advances like electricity and the motor car, right? These are, you know, coming and, you know, some of the people don't want that, right? Maybe there's advantages and benefits, but it'll change their way of life. So they're still, you know, kind of harking back for the good old days, right? And... I'm told that it's actually a, a, a kind of a, um, a demonstration of, it's, it's kind of like shows uh, how the aristocracy, aristocracy, I don't know how to pronounce that, okay. aristocracy, um, that was a kind of a, a, a change transition time for them, this, this way of life, right? Where, you know, the people who had money, the landowners, they, they didn't do anything, right? They just kind of, they live this kind of high society kind of life. Like I think the key line there, I'm told, is, "What's the weekend? Right? Every day's a weekend. We don't have to work. We have workers, right? We we control the economy. Blah blah blah, uh, and stuff. And so there's this resistance. There's this reluctance. There's this pushback on the you know, inexorable change uh, that you know, is coming, right?" maybe a little bit more close to home and in our church context is, you know, live stream is here to stay, right? Um, Social media, you know, we're we're kind of finally accepting that that has to be a a means of reaching out and, and contacting people and telling people about not only our church, but the gospel, right? Those are, you know, some things that maybe I or others may not welcome, but, There is that kind of of change happening, and you know, um, you know Habakkuk's again. His situation is more serious. We're talking about uh, exile. We're talking about death and punishment. We're talking about uh, an incredible upheaval um, that is related to immorality and sin and idolatry. Right. So I think his struggle is more um, serious uh, than ours, and yet. I think you can kind of get the sense that Habakkuk wishes that God would return to this mode of operation in the world, right? From the past, things that occurred, they were unprecedented at the time. But if God does them again, you know, praise him. That's what he wants. Uh, And implied is his disdain for any involvement or let alone victory uh, from the Babylonians. But God will not be deterred. He has set his mind on Babylonian agency. Um, you know, actually, I think what would be unprecedented to Habakkuk is why the Babylonians—they're the worst people out there. God, you don't act in that way, right? We already looked into all of that stuff. Yeah, actually, though, if you look at Israeli history, God continually used pagan nations as he said he would. Right. So I don't know why Habakkuk is so shocked and so surprised because God has um, done this before. Maybe he is, his experience is different. Maybe he dreads undergoing the yoke of the Babylonians, but he doesn't reference them here in the you know, previous acts of God. Okay. Our last unprecedented quality for today is found at the end of verse 2. Right. So in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Rebecca asked God to show mercy even when he is carrying out his wrath. Uh, from a certain perspective, this is unprecedented. Um, and this is the perspective I'm talking about. A lot of people, I think we kind of pigeonhole God into um, a very kind of a unidimensional way when it comes to like uh, holiness and wrath. Right? So... Uh, to me, it's kind of a binary perspective. If if someone does good, God rewards you. If someone does bad, God punishes you. I mean, that's kind of the the the, the their moral philosophy, right there. And so they they kind of you know wed God to almost a karmic kind of uh, point of view. Right. Many people believe that. This, so if something bad is happening to you, that means you've done something wrong. So you got to figure that out and fix it. And if, things are going well, then that's God blessing you, right? And there are times, of course, biblically, that that is the case, right? In the covenantal relationship that God has and and all that kind of stuff. But it is much more complex. It is much more nuanced. It is much more profound in my mind than that, that the Bible, right, and therefore God, is able to hold in tension this wrath and mercy. It's It's not contradictory. It's not too convoluted right so in that sense it's surprising that Habakkuk is able to you know kind of sneak in and beseech God for mercy even as he disciplines and distributes this kind of uh, punishment you know in our lives when we deal with right and wrong when we deal with people that have done things to us or things that we've done to people often, you know, maybe for simplicity's sake or maybe because it's just kind of how we feel in our, in our gut, you know, forgiveness, patience, you know, trying to reconcile or develop, you know, this kind of um, conversation and dialogue, uh, often that's, you know, dismissed or uh, it doesn't seem... Uh, even if we think we should do it it's very hard to do it and so we avoid it and we shun it and the result is that indeed our wrath remains wrathful right Uh, but here um, you know uh, Habakkuk and I don't know if Habakkuk is um, kind of hinting at at God's you know mercy in the past but Yeah, in the history of the Israelites, God's repeatedly shown them mercy. Uh, He has been long-suffering. God has limited the extent of punishments. He has forwent other harsh discipline uh, because of his mercy. And, you know, indeed, this theme culminates in the saving work of Jesus, right? Jesus came to earth to give his life in response to God's divine wrath. In the terrible crucifixion, the mercy of God was extended to all who would put their faith in the death and resurrection of the son of God. So this in wrath, remember mercy, it, it's like a, you know, it, through the cross, it becomes a precedent for how God deals with human beings. So uh, an oldie, but a goodie uh, song that re- expresses this well to me is here is love by, I think, Matt Redman. Yeah. On the Mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed the guilty world in love. Yeah, it's it's what this is, right? In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, God remembered mercy. But, you know, we can't take for granted that mercy. Remember that wrath is the context uh, it's, mercy is not automatic um, Each act of mercy of, That God demonstrates Like I said It's profound It's original It's given At great cost So in that sense It's unprecedented right? So don't cheapen mercy Don't demand mercy uh, Remember what it took For God to be merciful. So I'll finish by adjusting my earlier comments, right? I kind of try to paint a picture of Habakkuk being kind of like still resistant to God um, up through chapter, up through verse 15, right? Um, But I'm wondering if uh, he actually is hinting here in verse two, at the end of verse two okay, God, I know no matter what I say, your mind's made up and wrath is coming. The Babylonians are coming. I get that, right? But please, in wrath, remember mercy. As God is venting his wrath, Habakkuk appeals to the only thing that he can appeal to, God's mercy, right? Habakkuk needed mercy to be the final word, not wrath. Not judgment, not destruction, not punishment, not obliteration, but mercy. And that is what we need today. Uh, May that be our prayer in wrath. Oh Lord, remember mercy. Why don't we pray as we reflect.